the Holy Spirit's role in interpretation. So let's not be fooled by these series. Let's recognize what they are. Let's recognize their deceit. Let's tell others about their deceit. Let's show others how it is they can properly interpret the Word of God and how they should understand biblical interpretation. Okay, there were four aspects of the Holy Spirit's role in interpretation. Um, the interpretation will be the last one, but he inspired the Word of God. He formed the, the canon of the Word of God. He preserved the Word of God, and then he helps us interpret the Word of God. Let's begin with inspiration. And we've talked about these in the past uh, when we talked about what we believe about the King James Bible in our about legacy series. We talked about all of this. But uh, let's just go through it briefly. God inspired the Bible. The Bible is a product of what we call divine inspiration. The word inspiration means the act of breathing into a thing. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, the Bible says. That literally means all scripture is God-breathed, spoken by God. The scriptures are spoken by God. God conveyed into the minds of men his divine will so that when they wrote, they penned the supernaturally intended words of God. So God had words that he intended men to know, and he used men to do it. Now, what does this not mean? Or what does it mean? Then we'll do what it doesn't mean. God used each man's character, experience, ability, and culture to divinely pen his words. God, God used men, and as these men wrote, they were inspired by God, literally born along or carried along to write the words of God. The entirety of how this worked, we don't know. We don't know the degree to which God influenced them. However, we do believe that inspiration is not automation. God did not turn these people into robots. He did not physically take over their hands. It's not like they were closing their eyes and their hand was moving randomly and all of a sudden, hey, look, I wrote, I wrote Romans. Wonderful. It's not like that. We know that Paul used amanuensis. Uh, he used people to write for him that he dictated the words that he desired written. We know that the men's experiences come out greatly, that the culture comes out greatly. So we see that God used these men in some fashion. He inspired them to write what they wrote. Every word they wrote was what he intended them to write, but he did not physically take over their bodies. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So all Scripture, every bit of the Scriptures are given by inspiration of God. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, and this is what Sarah said earlier, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved. That word literally means carried along or borne along by the Holy Ghost. If even the men that wrote the Scriptures did not have the liberty to interpret them in whatever way they wanted, the men that wrote the Scriptures, the men that said, Thus saith the Lord, Isaiah and Jeremiah, they did not have liberty to say, I think God means this. They spoke the Word of God, and the Word of God got its meaning not from the men that spoke it, but from the God who gave it. And so, if, if 
the prophecies were not even given for private interpretation. The scriptures aren't given and aren't, we're not allowed to interpret them ourselves. We are, we are called upon to draw out the meanings that God intended in the text. Let me just um, remark on, well, we'll get there in preservation. Um, the Greek and Hebrew scriptures are therefore what we call infallible and inerrant. The word infallible means that what the authors will to convey through inspiration with regard to faith and practice are absolutely true and reliable. So the Bible is completely reliable in regard to faith and practice, doctrine and ethics, everything having to do with the teaching of who God is and everything having to do with what that means for our lives. But we don't just say the Bible is infallible, we also say that the Bible is inerrant. That what the authors willed to convey through inspiration with regard to matters of fact are absolutely true and reliable as well. So, history, geography, science, what the authors desired, when, when the authors wrote about, and they, they incorporated history or geography or science, they were 100% accurate. Now, this depends upon how where we are in the text and interpreting the Word of God. The understanding of infallibility and inerrancy is contingent upon the author's willed meaning in every any given text. Let me excuse me, let me give you an example in Isaiah chapter eleven. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now, trivia question. Taylor. Does the earth have four corners? No. Jared, what shape is the earth? Round, right? It's a sphere. It's, it's a circle. It's, it's this. There are no corners on a circle. My ring is circular. And I, I'm not going to be able to find four corners on this ring. Does that mean that the Bible is in error here? Well, it's a figure of speech, right? The Bible uses, that's one of those things that we talked about when we were interpreting. We need to allow the Bible to have things such as figures of speech, where it speaks of the four corners of the earth, meaning everything in the earth from every place around the earth. We might even still use this phrase today, even though we've seen satellite pictures from space. If I said that I'm going to go, I'm going to search the four corners of the earth for a delicious taco you're going to know what I mean is I'm going to keep going anywhere in the world until I find a delicious taco, right? It's not, you're, that's not going to throw you off and you're not going to call me uh, a, a scientific Neanderthal for not knowing that the earth is round. I'm well aware of the fact that the earth is round. So that's what the Bible is doing here. And there are places where the Bible will do this, where it will say four corners of the earth or it will say the sun rose this morning and the sun set does the sun ever actually rise or set? Evan, does the sun rise? No. Can you scientifically explain to me what happens when we see a sunrise in the morning? Everything's spinning, right? The earth is spinning. The earth is going around, is, is orbiting the sun. The sun is in one place. We're going around the sun and we're spinning while we're going around the sun. And it just so happens that God has created a consistent universe 
And when the sun rotate or when the earth rotates just enough, the sun starts to peak over sphere of the earth and we see the sunrise. No, we see the earth spin, but we see the sunrise. It's what we see. We see the sunrise and we see the sunset, right? And so would anyone call us scientific Neanderthals because I say that was a beautiful sunrise this morning? Fool, the sun doesn't rise. The earth spins. That was a beautiful earth spin this morning. Look at how that earth spun this morning. It's lovely. But that's not what we say. And so we need to allow the Bible to be normal. Use figures of speech. That doesn't mean it's scientifically inaccurate. Have you ever noticed in the prophecy of Matthew 24, Jesus Christ says that when he comes again in his second coming and there will be people working and some will be left and and others will be taken. Do you ever notice that at the same time when Jesus Christ says there will be people in the fields working, there will also be people in bed sleeping? How is it that people would be out in the fields working if there's people in bed sleeping? Well, because on one side of the earth it will be light. On the other side of the earth it will be dark. Did the people in Jesus' day know that the earth was round? Did they understand that sometimes it's light in places and at the same time it's light where they are, it's dark somewhere else in the world? Jesus knew because he said at the same time people will be out in the fields working and someone will be taken. Someone will be in bed sleeping and someone will be taken. One of the many ways in which the Bible reveals that it is infallible and inerrant when it speaks to geography, when it speaks to history, when it speaks to science, it's accurate. It's indeed accurate. The verse is not geographically accurate because Isaiah is using a figure of speech to imply totality. Where the Bible intends to inflect geography, however, it is always accurate. So that's inspiration. Any questions on inspiration or thoughts? Formation. The formation of the Bible. This is a big one with the Catholics. The Bible is made up of 66 books recognized as the canon. That word canon means rule or standard of Scripture. Now, this is important. The canon was not created. The canon was recognized. The 66 books that make up our Bible were not... It wasn't a man saying, "Mm, I think this book is a good one. Let's put that one in the Bible. And "Eh, This one, no. That one's no good. Let's just leave that one out. That's not how it worked. It's not that we... Any man created the canon, it's that the canon was recognized, that the church recognized these books to be infallible, inerrant, consistent with the word of God that was already given, and that it had the marks of inspiration upon it. The church recognized it, it did not create it. Now, why is this important? Because the Catholics will tell you, well, one of the great reasons why the Catholic church is the church is because it was the Catholic church that created the canon. It was the Catholic Church that decided which books went in and which books didn't. By the way, they don't even hold to their own canon anymore because they have the Apocrypha, which they believe is a part of the Word of God, but was not accepted by the early church. And of course, the Mormons add the Book of Mormon, and they believe that the the Book of Mormon is just as authoritative as the Word of God. And the Seventh-day Adventists have the writing of the prophet E.G. White, who they believe her writings are just as authoritative as the Word of God. And the Church of, the Church of Scientology has the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. And they believe that L. Ron Hubbard's writings are just as authoritative as the Word of God. And the modern church today has the writings of whoever they want. And they believe that the Word of God isn't even the Word of God, so it doesn't matter. 
anymore. And, but that's not how this worked. The books are not inspired because they were chosen to be in the Bible. Books were chosen to be in the Bible because they are inspired Scripture. Do you, do you understand the difference? People didn't say, the book of John is a good book, therefore it's in the Bible, and it is inspired by God. It's not inspired because the people in the church chose it. It was chosen by the people in the church because they recognized it to be inspired. They said, this book is a book that has all of the marks of the Word of God. So how do we know that they didn't make a mistake? That's the Holy Spirit's role in formation, right? The Spirit of God supernaturally led believers to recognize and collect thousands of years of inspired Scripture into the 66 books we now call the Bible. So we, we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit was guiding men to write the Bible, guided men to form the 66 books that make up the Bible, so we can be confident that if a book is not in our Bible, it might still be helpful and historically interesting, but it is not the inspired Word of God. God is not going to let books accidentally fall out of the Bible. Nor is He going to let a book accidentally slip in that shouldn't be there. It's not going to happen. Interesting, in the book of Jude, that tiny little book right before Revelation, Jude quotes out of the book of Enoch. Have you ever read the book of Enoch? Is it part of your regular Bible reading schedule, the book of Enoch? The book of Enoch isn't in our Bible. It's a historical book. It actually, it was written at the time, it was written few hundred years before Jesus Christ was born. And it references the time when, when Enoch walked on the earth. Various traditions and sayings of Enoch. And Jude references this when he talks about um, Michael the archangel contending with um, Satan over the body of Moses. Do you remember that from, from Deuteronomy? Moses goes up to Mount Pisgah and he looks over the promised land and then you read that whole account of Moses and or of Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body, right? It's not in there, is it? The only place that you would read about Michael and um, Satan fighting over the body of Moses is in the book of Enoch. So, is the book of Enoch inspired? Anyone? No, Courtney says, it's not. However, the story of Michael and Satan fighting over the body of Moses is found in inspired scripture, right? In the book of Jude. Therefore, while the book of Enoch is not inspired, the inspired scriptures in the book of Jude show us that what was written in the book of Enoch is at least true. It may not have been inspired by God, but it's true. Because it is found in the inspired scriptures. And so... Paul will quote various philosophers when he's on Mars Hill speaking to the men in Athens. That doesn't mean that those philosophers were inspired, but what we see in the book of Acts is inspired as it was written down by Luke, the account of Paul's journeys. Does that make sense? And so we see here that the canon was not established by men. It was recognized by men. And the Holy Spirit led in this. God led us to have the Bible written. God led us to recognize the Bible. 
Third, preservation. This is what Holly was talking about. Let's talk about some verses here. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus Christ said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words, it's in the plural, shall not pass away. His words. It doesn't say His word. A lot of people try to say today that God inspired the concepts of Scripture, but not the words of Scripture. They try to say that that God basically placed into the mind of Paul a general idea. Love is a good thing. That's Paul's general idea. Love is a good thing. And then he writes 1 Corinthians 13 the way he thinks it should be written. Paul does. That's not how it happened. God says, My words shall not pass away. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God inspired the actual words. Every word that was placed into the Bible matters because every word that was placed into the Bible was placed there by God. Psalm 119.89 Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Regardless of what man tries to do to the Bible on earth, it doesn't change what God has said and it doesn't change the fact that what God has said is settled in heaven. Truth is truth and it's going to be there. Okay, Matthew 5.18 For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, Greek iota, or one tittle, a punctuation mark, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And when did I say that that was going to happen? Christ's second coming, right, is when the law and the prophets are fulfilled. That's when all of those promises will finally come to pass. The Spirit of God inspired God's Word, but that makes little difference if He did not preserve God's Word. God's Word in the original languages has been preserved to this day. Wouldn't it be silly if God spent thousands of years inspiring Scripture to be written? Genesis through Deuteronomy by Moses and Joshua and Judges, Ruth, all of these books. He had them all written down exactly how he wanted man to understand them. The Gospels, exactly how he wanted the Gospels to be written. And then he says, okay, it's all written now. Man can just do his thing with it. Corrupt it, change it, confuse it, delete, add. So that now, God is looking up in heaven saying, oh, they don't even have my word anymore. They don't have my Gospel. They don't understand Jesus. They don't understand the any of those things because mankind has corrupted my word. If only there was a way that I could have kept my word from being corrupted, but mankind corrupts everything. Wouldn't that be silly? Why would God even bother to inspire it if He wasn't going to preserve it? Right? If if we don't have God's word today, then what, what good was it that we had it 2,000 years ago? It doesn't help me at all. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God, His Word, will not pass away. That God has preserved His Word for us. Now, we believe that His Word has been preserved in the original languages. So that the Greek and the Hebrew, it was preserved until the printing press, at which time it was completely preserved, because now that we have a printing press, there's no more danger of somebody writing the wrong thing. The printing press puts things into and in a, a unchanging format. People can still go in and, of course, change the press, but you're not going to have writing errors. You're not going to have scribal errors. If you print something out and you find an error, you just go back, you change that error, and you know you're not going to add new errors when you change the old error because it's the printing press isn't going to magically 
put errors into the text. And so we believe that God's word had been preserved through God's people until the printing press, and now the printing press has preserved God's word, and we believe that we have such an accurate and faithful translation in the King James Version of our Bibles that we can be confident that even in the English we have the very preserved word of God as it properly reflects the preserved Greek and the preserved Hebrew. Inspiration, formation, preservation. Any, any questions or thoughts on those before we, we go to this last bit? I'm going to hasten here. Interpretation. This is where the rubber meets the road. The Spirit of God helps the reader understand the pattern of meaning that the author willed. We call this illumination. That the, that as we're reading our Bibles, the Spirit of God helps us understand what God meant when He had it written. What God wants us to understand. Illumination means the Spirit of God helping the readers understand the pattern of meaning. Conviction is the Spirit of God impressing the truths of Scripture upon a man. So there's a difference between understanding the meaning and being convicted over it, isn't there? Have you ever understood something but not been, not done it, not, not responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Have you ever recognized that you needed to do something or get rid of something in your life? Some, some sin or some, Something that you needed to ask forgiveness to that person, um, but you didn't. You understand it. Or, have you ever read something and you've understood its implications, but you weren't convicted? And then at some point in the future, you realized that when that verse said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you had not been doing that. And all of a sudden, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you need to get it right. That's happened to me several times. As a matter of fact, it just happened to me this past week as I was preparing for my sermon this morning. I, I have been studying and preparing and I was ready to preach all this stuff. And then I just realized a couple days ago, oh, I've got something in my life that needs to be taken care of. The conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon me. Separate from the illumination, I had already understood what the passage said, but I hadn't fully understood how, what it meant to me until that point where the Holy Spirit convicted my heart. All men are illuminated, illumined and convicted to the extent that they are able to understand their need for salvation. So every man receives the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit to the extent where they recognize their need for our God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. We'll talk about that in our Sunday morning service. Nevertheless, John 16, 7 and 8. I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That word reprove means to convince or to convict. He will convict the world. The world will recognize that God is God and he will convict this world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so the entire world has some degree of illumination and conviction upon them. All men can understand the facts and concepts concerning the Bible, but only believers are illumined to understand the spiritual significance of those facts. So outside of salvation, the scriptures tell us that the unbeliever cannot understand the things of the Bible spiritually. They can understand the facts. They can understand Noah and his ark, two of every animal and seven of every clean animal, 
They could recite it all to you. But that doesn't mean they're going to understand the spiritual significance. Have you seen the preview for the new Noah movie coming out? With all the big Hollywood, big name Hollywood actors? Preview just went up this week, I think, for the, for the Noah movie. It's going to be coming out. It's got Russell Crowe in it and Anthony Hopkins and all, a lot of big name Emmy award winning, um, best picture folks in it. I'm concerned. I'm concerned because, see, while those directors might understand the facts, they are certainly not going to understand the fact that Noah and his ark are a picture of salvation. And they're certainly not going to understand that the whole point is that every single man on earth had a chance to step into the ark, but they refused. As a matter of fact, in the preview, it shows everybody trying to take over the ark because they want to be saved from this rain. That's not, that's not how it's going to work. It's not how it did work. Nobody wanted to get on that ark. Everyone had a chance to get on that ark. But only those who were right with God, the righteous Noah and his family did. Holly. And what what was different about it? I mean, I think you're, you're, you are probably the only one in this room who can remember reading the Bible as an unbeliever. So that's why I, I want your... And so when we talk about the fact that the Bible is a living book, that the Bible comes alive, it's not that, like Holly said, the Bible is changing anything. It's that the Holy Spirit is showing us different things. And it's not that He is creating meaning through us. He is just highlighting meaning as we're ready for it. Have you ever read something, gotten something great out of it, said, ah, oh, that's wonderful, and I'm so glad I understand this now. And then later on, you read it again and you get something different out of it. You say, wow, that's there too. And it's not that you're trying to squeeze it in there. It's there. But perhaps you weren't ready for it yet. Perhaps the Holy Spirit knew that you weren't in a place in your life where you could understand that lesson or whatever the case may be. Thank you, Holly, um, for, for that. that. That's exactly what we're speaking of here. First Corinthians chapter 2, we've preached on this not long ago. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of uh, man which is in him, even though the, even so the things of the Spirit of God knoweth no man, but the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us of God. Which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the, the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritual understanding of the significance of God's Word. Remember we talked about meaning, and then we talked about significance. 
The significance of God's word is sourced in the Holy Spirit's teaching. That's the illumination in the lives of believers. God promised this in 1 John 2. We'll be there on Tuesday nights pretty soon. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. This is not saying that you do not need human teachers to teach you the Bible. This is saying that you do not need man's wisdom. That everything that you need in regard to life and godliness is found in the wisdom of God's Word and is found through a proper understanding of it. Finally, spiritual illumination is not an excuse for laziness. It doesn't mean I don't have to ever study because if I, if I read it, God will show me what I need to know. I don't need to study. I don't need to know anything. No. My careful, prayerful study plus the Spirit's conviction and illumination equals a proper understanding of meaning and significance. If you just trust your own understanding and hope that the Holy Spirit will work it out, it might work, but it probably won't. You will misinterpret things. You will confuse things. Unless you study, unless you apply yourself to studying the Scriptures, comparing Scriptures with Scriptures, drawing out the character of God as it's teaching the Word of God, you will be drawn off course. So you do need to study. You do need to work at it still. Inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the illumination and the um, conviction of the Holy Spirit is not an excuse for laziness. Well, we'll stop there for today. I was hoping to get into the next lesson, but we didn't. Um, Next week, we will talk about some basics. And I'm just going to try to run through them a little bit. The basics of how it is you can begin understanding and interpreting your Bible soundly. We're not going to get, get into the digging part. Maybe, maybe in a few months we'll jump back into the series and we'll talk about, um, the, the rules of interpreting different types of literature, prophecy and parable and all those. We've talked about them a little bit. And then at some point we'll also talk about how to dig a little bit how to really dig into the Word of God. But we're not going to talk about those this time around. I'm hoping to finish next week, and then we'll jump into our new, our new lessons for December 1st.